You are listening to audio from Riverside Church. If you would like to check out more resources, please visit riverside.church. We thank you, Lord, for this word that we've heard. This word of hope, a branch, a sign of life where there was no life. We thank you for the peace that you have brought into this world and continue to bring into this world and continue to promise for this world even when we don't see it lived out among us. Lord, as we open your word together and as we pray and as we offer our hearts to you, may these words of my mouth and the meditations and thoughts of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord our rock, and our redeemer. Amen. Well, today we're going to talk about peace. Last week we talked about hope, a very active hope, a hope that fights against and drives out despair, hope as a verb. And today we're going to look at peace through sort of a similar lens, like how is peace active? What does it look like to actually do, participate, walk in, act as peace? What does it look like for peace to be a verb? In our lives. So peace is a word that we, we use to describe like serenity or like the state of mind that comes when occasionally you might be free of anxiety or feel like it, uh, at least in your own heart and mind, when you feel like you're at peace. Uh, that kind of peace, inner peace, peace of mind. I'm sure some of you feel like, yeah, I've heard about that. I'm not sure I've quite experienced it myself. Um, and other people are like, it just seems to come really naturally. Like you look at other people and they just appear to be at peace all the time. Like does nothing bother you? You're just taking it easy for the rest of us, that sort of stuff. Um, inner peace is, is important, but it's only a really small slice of what we're going to talk about today. When we talk about God's peace and the comprehensive idea of peace uh, that you may have heard talked about through the Hebrew word shalom. Has everybody heard that word before? Shalom. It's a Hebrew word, which means peace. It means well-being. If you went to Bethlehem or visited or participated in it, you probably heard that word several hundred times in the last weekend. Um, but shalom is a vision of the world that God made and the world that God intends. Shalom is peace, but it is this big, also like this, this theological category that means so much to the Hebrew people and also to us as Christians. God created the world in perfect shalom. His intention is to bring the world back to perfect shalom. It means peace and wholeness and everything as it should be. Dr. John Perkins has said countless times that shalom means nothing missing and nothing broken. Shalom is a word that describes what God created and how he created it and what the Spirit is recreating in the world through Christ. So to put it concisely, here's a definition. Shalom is the vision of God's intentions for the world. Nothing missing, and nothing broken. That is peace. So I'm going to use shalom and peace interchangeably today. Is that okay? Whether I'm speaking English or Hebrew, we're, we're, we all get that. Shalom, peace. We're talking about the vision for God's intentions for the world with nothing missing and nothing broken. That's what we're talking about today. Um, so, We have in the Bible shalom at these bookends of time. At the very beginning, at creation, shalom. 
peace. The people at peace, everything at peace. And then we have our ultimate hope in, our rest, in the restoration of that shalom that we talked about last week, remember? The vision of Revelation 21, this idea of everything being at peace, everything being at shalom. So we have these bookends where there's shalom, and then we have the middle. And y'all know what the middle's like, because that's what we're in right now. What do we do now? What does peace look like now? Where can I find it? What's it all about? Um, A vision of nothing missing and nothing broken is all well and good, but there are things missing and broken all around us, right? We see that? There are things missing and broken all around us. There are parents missing. There are aunts missing. There are uncles and neighbors and even children missing. Victims of violence, careless driving, cruel illnesses and diseases, there are people missing all around us. There are things broken. There are families broken. And if they're not missing, so many families and relationships are broken by relational discord, betrayal, abuse. There are broken relationships with God, broken relationships between people, and broken relationships with churches. And that is in our relatively peaceful community. I think our, our, peace, our community is relatively peaceful. By contrast, it would be impossible to even begin to calculate what's missing and broken in Israel and Gaza right now, right? 65 days ago, Hamas bombed Israel and triggered this horrific cycle of bombings, hostages, torture, thousands of lives lost, Israeli lives, Palestinian lives, Jewish lives, Muslim lives, Christian lives, with displacement and death mounts tolling and mounting, with vulnerable civilians being targeted, with rising Islamophobia and anti-Semitism all over, and many people like me are so overwhelmed by the daily news that we are easily tempted to just kind of put our head in the sand and check out. Political tribes demonize each other. More relationships are broken. More family members are missing. None of the powers have clean hands, and the disruption of shalom is grotesque. So geopolitical matters are a very, like several very long steps away from my area of expertise, okay? But even a small step towards shalom would feel miraculous in that situation right now. And though the modern-day state of Israel is very different than the monarchy of Israel that we talk about in the Scriptures in the ancient times, the enormous disruption of shalom feels like a tragic callback to where the prophet Isaiah began to talk about his people, the Israelites, in Isaiah 11. And he says, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. The stump of Jesse. Walter Brueggemann, scholar, writes that a stump is a terminated plant from which nothing can grow. That's what a stump is, a terminated plant from which nothing can grow. The line of David, David as a king and and his sons and his son and his son and his son, that line, that lineage has come to a point of deep failure several generations after the promise that his line would be an everlasting kingdom, but it's come to a point of deep failure. Light is but a flicker, hope is lost, and all that's left is a lifeless stump. Corrupt kings have perpetuated evil and injustice. They've lost their way from the leadership on down. Shalom is missing. So many things are missing. So many things are broken. But Isaiah has an idea 
of how God's people will get to peace. He looks at it and he says, well, shoot. A shoot will come up. I I couldn't resist, sorry. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. That sounds awesome, right? But how? It's a nice theory, but a stump is a stump, is it not? A stump is a stump. The very symbol of impotency, it's the final page and stage of the giving tree, if you've read that. An old stump is good for sitting and resting. Not much else. But we're talking about God, so let's keep reading. Verse 3, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. The spirit of the Lord. We would name the spirit of the Lord now as the third person in the Godhead of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? That's how we would talk about the Spirit today. But it's clear that the Spirit here, the Spirit acting upon this shoot, this branch of Jesse, is doing God things, right? Doing God things, doing things that only God can do. Making hope where there is no hope and peace where there is no peace. God will place His Spirit, His anointing on someone a branch who will provide the sort of discerning leadership to set things out, to set things right. And the description of how the Spirit connects to this person, how the Spirit will plant in them virtues to make good decisions. You heard words like wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, fear of the Lord. All these are not just important, but essential virtues if a leader is to bring this people out of their current state of hopelessness, and into a place where shalom, to bring light into the darkness, to take a place where shalom is just missing and broken and everything is broken, and to put it back together. The Spirit brings light to the darkness. Let's keep reading. Second part of verse 3. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness, the sash around his waist. We said earlier, reminder, that shalom is the vision of God's intentions for the world with nothing missing and nothing broken. We went over that before. Justice, which is a word that was just mentioned in this passage, justice is very similar with a little bit of nuance, maybe even a little bit more active. Justice is God's people pursuing God's intentions for how we live together in the world. Just a a working definition of justice. So by this definition, any way God's people come together to pursue shalom, to pursue peace, to pursue God's intentions, for the community, is a pursuit of justice. But like any work of the people of God, it doesn't originate with the people. It starts with and it comes from the Spirit of the Lord. In this case, the Spirit being and coming upon a particular leader, a specific leader, a branch from the stump of Jesse. 
This branch, under the Spirit of the Lord, will bring justice to the land. That is what is promised in Israel. That is what Isaiah promises. He says, with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. That is a lot of power. The standard for all judgments will be the righteousness of the Lord. That's the standard by which the Lord makes judgments. His own righteousness. Not the ear-tickling ideologies of the day, but the character and the righteousness of the Lord himself. That is the standard by which decisions are made. He will render judgments, strike the earth, slay the wicked, but not just to be violent, not because the Lord loves violence, but so that disruptions of shalom and injustices may be taken care of and made right. There are ways that the Lord himself steps in to bear the standard, to set things right, and to establish justice in the land. This is the word of the Lord. Because the Lord wants justice in the land, right? Is that fair? His intentions, he wants, he, wants it, he wants it to look like that. He wants his people to be just. And that begins and ends with his role, the Spirit of the Lord, energizing and animating every effort. But it also shapes and forms us his people, into justice-seeking people. Peacemakers, beacons of shalom, beacons of peace in a world full of missing and broken pieces. The vision of shalom is also something accomplished only in the Spirit of the Lord. You've got to remind us of that. It's only accomplished in the Spirit of the Lord. The iconic vision of peace that's like so weird and curious to our ears to every way we understand the way the animal kingdom works um, because of its curious beauty and wonder is, is, is a picture of deep shalom, but, but we'll read it again. You may like, this is, just, this is not how things work on Animal Planet. Okay, Chapter six, or verse 6. The wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. Cow will feed the bear, feed with the bear. That would be interesting. (laughs) Hey, bear, you want some hay? (laughs) Their young will lie down together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den. And the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. Anybody have a young child who's willing to let them put their hand into a viper's nest? Um, it is unexpected picture because everything in our experience would expect this combination of predators and prey, strong and vulnerable, to end with some pretty grim disruptions of shalom, right? Lots of spilled blood, vulnerable prey, both missing and broken, right? We would, we would expect that to be the picture if we just threw these animals together. Um, Walter Brueggemann, again, he observes that the distortion of human relationships, so our relationships with each other and with God and with the world. Distortion of human relationships is at the root of all distortions of creation. That adversarial human transactions foul the nest for all creatures. I've always wondered what 
everything was like in Eden before the fall, right? We know what the consequences were for Adam, the consequences were for Eve. What were the animals like? How different were they? Did they undergo some sort of categorical shift in the way that they lived? Um, So anyway, precisely because of justice and righteousness brought by the coming human king in the spirit of the Lord. So if the problems were caused by humans, maybe they can be fixed through humanity somehow. Maybe, every, maybe all these problems can somehow be fixed through humanity. But not humanity alone, right? The coming king in the spirit of the Lord with the very power of God on him, restoration of shalom within the human community is possible, and maybe we can dare to envision peace and shalom with the rest of creation too. God's justice promises restoration of relationships, certainly between us and God. That's, that's the one we get super excited about, and I get super excited about. But between us and each other, right? Restoration of relationships with each other. Restorations between humans and the rest of creation, like little kids and vipers, right? And also, all of creation with itself, the cow and bear sharing supper together. So when we think about peace this second Sunday in Advent, that's all included. It's all part of the picture. The wolves and the lambs and the shepherd and goats, calves, lions, yearlings, children, cows, bears, lions, infant children, cobras and vipers, predators and prey, strong and weak. And that's great and that's beautiful. I love that picture. I love reading these words. It's glorious, but what does it have to do with the world I live in here and now? What does it have to do with my neighborhood? What does it have to do with global conflicts? I appreciate the sentiment of perfect peace, but I kind of want to say, get real. (laughs) So let's look at verse 9. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. Not getting better, are we? Uh, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord and the waters cover the sea. So neither harm nor destroy. Again, we don't have to look very far to see people harming and destroying each other, right? See it? It's happening all the time. But the second part of verse 9, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. As the waters cover the sea. Does anybody get struck by that as weird? The waters cover the sea. In my understanding, the waters themselves are the sea, right? Does anybody else usually think of it that way? I don't think of the waters covering the sea. I think of the waters being the sea. I, I, just, I wonder if that's on purpose because we take this idea of the earth being filled with the knowledge of the Lord. So whatever part of earth is earth is now somehow the knowledge of the Lord. Like the whole earth is nothing but the knowledge of the Lord. Is that the vision that we're picturing? That the whole earth is just nothing but the knowledge of the Lord. The Lord just is known and knows everything and everybody. Can you imagine knowing the Lord fully, completely, in every way? I know I'm pretty satisfied with like incremental growth and incremental growing in my knowledge of the Lord. But can you imagine like just all of a sudden the floodgates open and you just know it all? Oh my goodness. But that would change things, right? It would change things. If we all knew God fully, completely, 
if the knowledge of God washed over us like the waters of the sea, if every human would seek God, not seeking to be right about God against somebody else, assuming that I know something that you don't, but like because we all have the knowledge of God together, we don't have to have that competition. We don't have to play that game. If every human seeks God not to be right about God, but just seeks God himself, the creator of this whole thing, the creator of each and every person, how could we then continue to harm and destroy each other on his holy mountain? And the fact that we continue to harm and destroy each other lays bare before us the reality that we are not yet filled with the knowledge of the Lord, right? We still have a ways to go. Some are closer to others, to be sure, okay? No illusions about that. Not all conceptions or ideas about God are equal or, or valid even. But I do think that some humility is in order when it comes to our knowledge of God, especially if we think about fully knowing the knowledge of God. Because if we, if we tried to wield that in a particular way, it could be harmful to others. But let's get to the last verse, because the last verse is exciting. Verse 10. In that day, in that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. The root of Jesse, a banner for the peoples. Okay. Here's where I want to make clear. Jesus clearly takes up the mantle of this verse and this whole chapter of Scripture in a very singular way because Jesus himself is a descendant of Jesse. Jesus is a descendant of the line of David and David's father's name was Jesse, right? He's part of this lineage. But Jesus obviously and clearly takes this up in his ministry. He takes on the mantle of this role. The Spirit of the Lord is upon him to make all these things happen. Jesus is the hope of the nations, the hope of the world. Jesus is the beacon of shalom and justice in the world. The compelling reality of Jesus' ministry is this reality, and it stands as a banner. And we might say that if Jesus were to put a name on the banner that he raises above his ministry, he would, he would put the words on the banner, the kingdom of God. You hear Jesus talk about the kingdom of God a lot, right? Talks about that being, that being what he's bringing into the world, what he's ushering in. The kingdom of God is God's intentions enacted under Christ's authority. So we have another definition. We have shalom, we have justice, and now we have the kingdom of God. And they all overlap. They all have a lot to do with each other. The kingdom of God is God's intentions enacted under Christ's authority. And God's intentions have already been enacted under Christ's authority. Right? God has already said, this is what... It, Things are going to look like this is the way things should be and his authority has already taken over in so many significant ways. But, again, we have the beginning, we have the end, and then we have the middle, right? We have shalom, we have shalom, and then we got whatever we're doing here. Jesus Christ who was, who is, and who is to come. 
ushers in the kingdom of God to put things under his authority and under his banner. Let's start with who was. Who was? Jesus came in the flesh, came as a vulnerable one, like a little child, like, like, maybe like that little child playing in the viper's nest and the cobra's den. He came into the world that spoke of peace, Pax Romana after all, but, he did not, but that world did not have peace. He came humble and vulnerable, but he also came with power to heal, to forgive, to manipulate the wind and the waves, to cast out demons and all sorts of spiritual oppression. And ultimately, he demonstrated authority over all the powers and all the principalities by becoming obedient to death on a cross, making sure that all of those powers that thought they had won for like three days. But he showed them instead that he was the victorious one through his resurrection power. Death, evil, powers, principalities, and authorities do not win. That is who was. Who is to come? Last Sunday, we talked about hope. We talked about Revelation 21. We talked about how our hope is sure and certain that the same king who defeated and crushed all the powers will one day assume full authority, reign with his people, usher in complete and perfect shalom, And that is our hope, even when our hope is shaken and challenged. Who was, who is to come, but again, I skip the middle, who is. Here's some great news. Who is, is still moving. That's some great news. Who is, Jesus, is still at work. The Lord has done and is doing and will do all the heavy lifting of redemption. He is the Alpha and the Omega. But the Spirit of the Lord, the same Spirit of the Lord that was on Jesus, right? That same Spirit, the same Spirit of the Lord, is on his followers. We believe that? The same Spirit of the Lord that was on Jesus is on his followers. Maybe not as fully, maybe we, we don't know like how to access all the layers of the force that Jesus did, but the Spirit of the Lord is on us. As we seek shalom, as we seek the virtues of the kingdom, as we pursue God's intentions for how we live together in the world, we do so in the Spirit of the Lord, the same Spirit that was upon Jesus. Am I helpless without the Lord? In a lot of situations, yeah. Probably most situations. I can do a few things on my own. Usually mess them up, but, you know. Am I helpless without the Lord? But... Are we as a body helpless without the Lord? Yes. But are we helpless? We're not helpless because we're not without the Lord, are we? Right? If we were without the Lord, we would be helpless, but we are not without the Lord. The Spirit of the Lord is upon us. The Spirit of the Lord compels us to do things, to live, to work. The Spirit of the Lord energizes us. The Spirit of the Lord redeems us. The Spirit of the Lord will guide us into peace and justice and righteousness and truth. The Spirit of the Lord can give us strength and protection to enter into spaces that desperately need the light of the gospel. The Spirit of the Lord compels us to stand against injustice and all of the missing and broken pieces and disruptions of shalom that are littered all over our lives. As Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. Does it ever feel like enough, though? Does 
That's the question I kept coming to. Does it ever feel like enough? Like, do I feel like the stories of the missing persons and the broken pieces are bigger and louder than the stories of peace and shalom and restoration? Sometimes. Sometimes I feel that way. And what I do and what I urge us all to do in those moments is to cry out to God. Cry out to God. Let Him know what we're seeing from our limited viewpoint, from our limited perspective, but what we're seeing and what aches us, what causes us grief and pain, what causes us to wonder when that who is to come is going to come. And when we do cry out to God, the Spirit of the Lord, the same Spirit of the Lord who animates us and gives us energy to go do something about some of the broken things that we see, that same Spirit of the Lord will also come to us and bring us comfort when the road seems too long and the load is too heavy to bear. Same Spirit does it all. Animates us for the fight, comforts us when we're wounded from the battle. So today, before we come to the table to celebrate the one who makes things right, and I cannot say more definitively that the Lord Jesus is the one who makes things right for us and the one who will one day make things right for all. But I want to take a little bit of time to sit with maybe some of the missing or broken pieces that are swirling around in your own heart and mind. To sit with them and to hold them in your hands Hold them in your heart. Hold them, I mean, visually, you can envision holding them in your hands, the missing and the broken pieces. Hold them up to the Lord for him to see, for the Lord to restore, and for the Lord to bring peace. So let's just take about a minute to sit with that, and I'll come back up and invite us to the table. Lord, we hold before you today missing and broken pieces. 
things that disrupt our personal peace, things that, that weigh on our hearts, in our families, in our neighborhoods, in the world. We hold them up to you because we know you are the one who can bring peace. You are the one who will bring peace. You are the one who can take broken things and put them back together. We trust in that and we believe you to be that, Lord. And we give you thanks for all the peace that you do give us, whether that is inner peace, whether that's a stage towards restoration in a relationship that's been tough for us, Lord, we thank you for all the ways you do bring peace already. Even as we look around us and we just long for more of it. Not because we're greedy, but because we want the world that you want. Where your intentions are done. And we thank you for this beautiful sign that you've given us, this invitation you've given us to come again and again to your table. You've offered yourself to us, your body and your blood, for nourishment that our lives might be animated by the Spirit of the Lord. There is a mystery to it. We don't presume to understand exactly everything. But we know that you have invited us to your table. We know that all who name Jesus as their Lord are invited to come. And we ask, Lord, for you to meet us as we do so and as we continue to sing together. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to Riverside Church. For more resources, visit riverside.church.